in this world and in eternity. But before I continue, I'm going to dismiss children for Children's Church. It's ages 4 through 1st grade. And you can follow Mr. and Mrs. Holty and the crew out this north door. So as I said, in two weeks we're going to celebrate Easter, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what? It was just four months ago, a little, little less than four months ago, we celebrated Christmas. Now maybe with all the snowfall <laughs> we've had this, this uh, winter, you don't really want to think about that. You're just going to, uh, it's all melting, Pastor, please, let's, let's just go on. But, you know, the message of Christmas is not snow. The message of Christmas is that God entered into history to reconcile sinful men and women rebelling against their Creator to a holy God. It's a message of hope. In fact, it's a message of peace, if you will. And during that time, we read certain verses, one of which is just a, a prophecy out of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then when the Christ child is born, God sends his angels, not to the high and mighty, but to some plain shepherds, and they get to hear this announcement from a heavenly host who say in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. You see, Jesus came to bring peace between a holy God and sinful men and women, to make reconciliation. And he does. And we get to be conveyors of that good news, we who follow Jesus. But I want to tell you, sometimes that news is not always welcome. As much as we're called to have an answer for the hope that's within us, and to do that, tell people about that with gentleness and respect, it's not always a welcome message because, excuse me as I breathe in the microphone, it's not always welcome because, well, it's exclusive. You see, it's only in what Christ has done. It's not by our ability to be good enough or even other religions, which basically are saying you can earn your way. No, it's, it's not. You see, within the good news, there's bad news. We are people who have offended a holy God. What we deserve is His wrath. And there's nothing we can do to merit salvation. That's, that's not always a welcome message. It's offensive. We don't like that message. And third of all, it demands faith. It demands surrender of our control of our lives to someone other than ourselves. And in a society that loves to celebrate individuality and independence, that's an offensive message. 
Jesus continues today in Luke chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you might want to crack your Bible open there today to talk about living for eternity. And then he warns us, he warns us that our faith in him, as much as he came to bring peace, might actually bring division and separation with those around us, even those who are members of our own family. Jesus very candidly tells us the truth that the cost of our allegiance might exact division. So if you have your Bibles and are open to Luke chapter 12, we're going to pick it up at verse 49 and just hear these words that Jesus has to share with us. In verse 49 he says, I have come to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo. And what constraint I'm under until it is completed. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? Yes. No. No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two. Two against three. And they will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Let me pray for us and then we'll dive into this fiery passage that Jesus has for us. Indeed, it's true, Lord, you have come. You lived the life that we couldn't. You paid the, the debt that we couldn't, and you conquered the foe in death that we could not. But you're calling for our first allegiance. And would you give us grace to see what you have in your word for us today? Help us to respond to you in faith. Help us to respond to you in first love. Help us respond to you, trusting that you have all that we have in your hands, even in division, Lord. And so, Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Speak to our hearts today. Amen. Last week we talked about Jesus talking about his return. History is going somewhere. It's not going to end just this endless cycle of elections or whatever else is going to happen in history. No, Jesus is going to return one day. He's going to make everything right. And he will hold people accountable for how they responded to him. And his message is, be ready. Be ready, especially those of us who know him already. Be ready for my return. But again, Jesus today talks about this fire in the meantime that he's bringing to earth. And he says in verse 49, I have come to bring fire on earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Jesus is not confessing that he's an arsonist here, okay? That's not what he's saying. He's using figurative language. And fire in scripture oftentimes represents God's judgment. Especially after a couple of the verses we looked at last week, like 
the second half of verse 46, where Jesus talks about this abusive steward who's beating others and getting drunk. And he talks about he's going to come at a time when he's not ready. He says, and he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. Or again, in verse, uh, I believe, 48, where he says, or 46, this is the, the, the servant who's, who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. Again, my point is, I think it's a fair assessment to say that fire represents God's judgment here. He indeed will punish sin. But I think there's a nuance that Jesus is bringing also. It's not just limited to judgment. You see, fire, if there's a fire in a building, it forces us to make a choice. What are you going to do about that fire? Are you going to go to the other end of the building and hope it doesn't come near you? Are you going to ignore it and say, la, 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 it doesn't exist? Are you going to get out of the building because you might be consumed by the fire? It causes you to make a choice. What are you going to do? The fire of the gospel causes people to make a choice. The fire of the gospel causes people to make choice. Again, Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. You cannot remain neutral when there's a fire in a building. And Jesus has come to proclaim the kingdom of God. It's a call to respond, to flee from God's judgment, to repent, to turn towards God, and turn and put your faith in the one that God sent. That is Jesus, who is the Christ. And so far, as we've looked in the Gospel of Luke, some have decided to follow him, to respond in faith, his own disciples. Earlier in, in chapter 5, you've got Peter, James, and John. And Jesus calls them to follow him. In fact, Peter says, no, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I can't follow you. And Jesus says, hey, come and follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. So Peter and his partners, James and John, they leave everything and follow him. Jesus comes up to a tax collector. <laughs> if you know anything about tax collectors in those times, they were usually crooked people. They collected for the government and then took what they want. But Jesus calls this man named Levi, who was a sinner, to repent, to come and follow him. And so Levi leaves everything he has as a tax collector, his tax booth, and follows Jesus. But some take a wait-and-see approach. Jesus is preaching in the region he grew up in. It's called the Galilee. He preaches in a place called Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. He does miracles there. And a lot of people say, well, that's pretty cool. But I'll wait and see. I'll wait and see what he does. I'll wait and see how things turn out here. And Jesus says, look, if the miracles that were done in your city were done in Tyre and Sidon, which were coastal Gentile cities who were oftentimes under God's judgment, he said, those people would have repented a long time ago. 
you need to respond instead of a wait-and-see attitude. And then there were those who just flat-out rejected Jesus. In fact, they called him a fraud, mocked him in chapter 11. Jesus cast out demons out of a man and this group of Pharisees, religious experts, people who should know better, say, well, he does this by the prince of demons, by Beelzebul. And Jesus calls him to account and says, look, you know and I know that a house divided can't stand. So if I cast out demons by the prince of demons, then how's that house going to stand? And by the way, who do your sons cast out demons by? But if that's not true, then the kingdom of God has come. And he's intimating, and you're rejecting it. Your guys are saying that you follow the kingdom of God. You're rejecting what God is doing. And the point is this. Just as fire, you can't remain neutral with fire. You can't remain neutral with Jesus Christ. You have to make a choice with him. Are you going to reject him outright? Are you going to say, I'll wait and see? Or are you going to follow him? This is the fire that Jesus comes to set, if you will. You've got to make a choice of what you're going to do with Jesus. Then it's interesting, the next verse, and this is where I say Jesus pays the price of the gospel or he quenches judgment's fire. Look at verse 50. I have come, I have, excuse me, but I have a baptism to undergo. And what constraint I am under until it is completed. Now, I don't know if you're looking very closely there, but think about the mixed metaphors that Jesus is talking about here. He's come to bring fire, but he's got a baptism underwater to go under. Fire and water, kind of two different concepts. Again, Jesus is bringing fire, but baptism is a symbol for going through an ordeal, going through something. And he says, I feel constraint. Another word to translate that word is, I feel distress or burdened. It's like this driving force that has both terror, but also knowing I have to do this. I have to complete this. I have to bring this to fruition. It's like some of us, when we know we need to go in for a root canal, we know we need to go because of the pain, but we're terrified by it. But we're constrained. We're in distress until that's done. But we're talking about something much greater than just a simple dental procedure. We're talking about Jesus going to the cross. Where He would be physically nailed to a cross, have a spear pierce his side, a crown of thorns go on his head. That is the physical constraints. And then he would be the target of God's wrath to the point where Jesus would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he becomes the target of God's wrath against sin. Against representing our rebellion. 
our doing our own thing before a holy God. Jesus steps into that place. Jesus tells his disciples earlier in chapter 9, where he's heading to Jerusalem, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. Again, he is both distressed, distressed about what that is going to look like. We'll see later on in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, God, Father, if this can pass for me, let it be so. But yet, not my will, but your will. And yet he is determined to carry out this mission because he knows. He knows that's the only way that we can be reconciled to him. He is distressed by this baptism. But this is where he's going to quench the wrath of God, if you will. See, Jesus setting fire is not in order because he takes pleasure in destruction of people. Again, remember, his mission is one of rescue, of reconciliation. Earlier in this gospel... It's in chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are passing through a Samaritan village. And the Samaritans know he's going to Jerusalem and there's conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And they reject him. They say, get out of here. And James and John say, hey Jesus, you want us to call down fire on these guys for rejecting you? Come on. We'll show them that you're the Messiah. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, look, I've not come here to burn people up. I've come here to rescue them. To save them from the coming judgment. If in the end they reject me, then the Father will deal with that. But that's not my mission. Yes, a fire has been set. You have to make a choice of what you're going to do with Jesus. But Jesus' mission is to absorb that fire, to absorb that wrath, if you will. Think about this. Many of you have heard this verse, me saying it. Many of you memorized this verse in Awana. But John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever is going to believe in Him should not perish. The content of where that that word perish means there's something coming that you're going to perish from. It's God's judgment. You should not perish, but have everlasting life. If Jesus is the object of your faith, then you don't have to perish. You can have everlasting life. Because He took upon Himself the fire of God's wrath, if you will. I'm from the West Coast, from California specifically, and every year something happens. Wildfires. Happens in the wooded areas. California in the last few years has been a tinderbox for that. But there are a group of people that go out there to fight them, and they're called the hot shots. And they get dropped by helicopter in an area, right? Sometimes the fire is surrounding them. And they try and bring fire breaks to stop the fire. 
And one of the ways they do that, and actually as the fire is coming towards them, is they'll take an area and they'll actually set it on fire beforehand and burn it up. So when the wildfire comes there, there's nothing, no fuel to be consumed. And those who are in that area are safe. You see, Jesus becomes the ground zero, if you will, for God's wrath to burn there before it gets to us. He is the hot shot, if you will, that comes and rescues us from the fire of God's wrath. That's why the gospel is good news. And by the way, there are many more benefits. I don't get to get to those today. But it's not just being saved from God's wrath. It's becoming a part of His family. It's being a child of God. It's being, knowing the living God and walking with Him. But I don't have time to get there today. But again, back to Jesus' main message today. The fire of the gospel, it divides people. It divides people. Again, verse 51. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two. Two against three. They will be divided. Father against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. See, choosing to follow Jesus sometimes will bring conflict even in our own families. That's not a pleasant thought. But Jesus is just dealing in reality. And ultimately, Jesus is calling for our ultimate allegiance to Him beyond that of our earthly families. And folks, let me tell you, what Jesus is calling for, He went through Himself. Jesus in this earthly ministry, you know, He had some brothers who didn't believe in Him. I mean, it was probably tough to be a little brother of Jesus, okay? Why can't you be more like Jesus? Come on, Mom. But, you know, when he went out on his earthly ministry, nobody believed in him. Not even his own family. In fact, the Gospel of Mark talks about he's casting out demons and the, and the local uh, religious authorities say, Hey, come take care of your, your, your brother because he's crazy. And they show up. And as Luke talks about it, they're waiting there to, you know, meet Jesus and talk to him. And Jesus says, look, my mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put them into practice. Jesus had division in his own family. So what he's bringing to our attention was true for him himself. (laughs) The good news is that's not the end of the story, though. Because after he died, after he rose from the dead, he reveals himself, even to his own brother James, and another brother named Jude or Judah. And they become pillars of the church, and they come to follow him and understand who Jesus really was. But here's what I want to say. Sometimes when you have newfound faith and you want to share it with the members of your family, not everyone's excited about that. Because it goes against the way of the family, right? Oh, you, you, you want to go to church today? We were going to go to the lake. Okay, I'm not preaching against going to the lake. Okay, don't hear that. But I'm saying that God 
becomes first. And that's a threat to the family. And Jesus talked about it numerically, right? Two against three, three against two, sometimes generationally. Father against the son, son against the father. Daughter against a mother, mother against a daughter. Mother-in-law against a daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law. And it was true, it was true in first century homes, right? When the gospel spreads, someone coming home into a Jewish family said, I found the Messiah, it's Jesus. And other people in the family go, wait a minute, are you sure? Or, no, no, the Pharisees have said he's a, a, a false teacher. There was division. And then the gospel spreading beyond the Jewish community into the Gentile families, right? I found the Lord Jesus. Well, that's great, but you still have to say that, that the emperor is Lord. No, Jesus is Lord. And it brought division. It brought division. And it's no different today. No different today. Again, people coming to faith, and if you're in a household where your parents are Muslim, or if they're uh, a different religion, even Jewish, sometimes it's like, who, who are you? You become a different person. There's a, a man named Nabil Qureshi. He's written a book called Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. And Nabil grew up in a strongly Muslim family. In fact, his grandparents were Muslim missionaries to Indonesia. But in college, he roomed with a Christian. In fact, he would say, he became my best friend. And as they argued back and forth about the validity of, of Christianity and about the validity of Islam, his friend challenged him and says, look, Nabil, here's what I want to say to you. If Jesus really is who he claims to be, is he worth giving up everything to follow him? And again, you can imagine Nabil had strong ties to his family. But over time he discovered that Jesus really was the Christ, the Messiah. And he said that the saddest day of his life was when he had to tell his Muslim mom, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. And God since has used Nabil to, to reach thousands with the gospel. He's been using Ravi Zacharias' ministries. You can just Google his name on, on or look on, on YouTube. He's very articulate, very well spoken, and I really appreciate him. But he experienced the division of his family. Right now he's estranged from his family. But the good news is, is that God is not done writing his story. He's not done writing his story. But he is worth giving everything up for. Jesus is worth giving everything up for. And here's the thing. When we come to Christ, our families need to see Christ in us. They need to see Christ in us. Lee Strobel was a 
a graduate of Yale Law School, became a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He would say he was a cynical critic of the Christian faith because he'd seen the worst of humanity. Most of his beat was court uh, reportings. He saw the worst of the worst. And yet when his wife Leslie started going to church and God started bringing changes in her life because she started to follow Jesus, he couldn't deny that God was doing something. And so it sent him on a journey to find out who this Jesus is. And over time, Strobel put his faith in Christ himself and has written a, a fantastic book that really does a great job of saying there's a real, plausible, intelligent, in fact, well-reasoned reason to believe in Christ. And the book is called A Case for Christ. And I highly recommend it if you've not read it. And he takes um, really a lot of different uh, directions on, on why we should believe in Christ and the, the validity of the Scriptures, the validity of the resurrection, etc. But here's the thing. Strobel wasn't initially convinced by those arguments. He was initially convinced by the Christ he saw in his wife, Leslie. Now some of us here, maybe we feel like you feel like I'm preaching to the choir because parents are Christ followers, children are Christ followers, and there's no problem here. There, there's no conflict. But let me say, Jesus is still calling for first place in our children's hearts, in the parents' hearts, if you will. And maybe sometimes we as parents were well-meaning, but we get in the way sometimes of what Jesus has for our children. Maybe it's because we have dreams for who they're going to be or what they're going to do, and we want to impose that upon them. Or maybe it's, yeah, I, I'm so glad that you're following Jesus. Just make sure that when you grow up, you live near me and the grandchildren are close by. Or you can follow Jesus as, as, as much as you want, but make sure you do it safely. Folks, following Jesus is not a safe thing, at least from an earthly standpoint. It is from an eternal standpoint. But what kind of constraint are we putting on our kids because we insist that they do things our way rather than following Jesus' call. The first sermon I ever preached here at Breen Community Church was about Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is a story about Abraham and Isaac. If you don't know the story, I'll quickly paraphrase it. God calls a man named Abram to follow him at age 75, to follow him in a place he does not know. He's gonna, he doesn't have any kids, but he's going to give him descendants, and those descendants are going to be like the stars of the heaven. After 99 years, God says, next year you're going to have a child finally. And God gives him this son. In fact, he can't believe it so much, he names him Laughter, Isaac. And Isaac grows up to be around 12. And then the scripture says that God tests Abraham to see where his heart is at. He says, I want you to go to a place I'm going to show you. I want you to sacrifice your child to me. 
And Abraham does it. And it seems like a crazy story to us. And by the way, God never condones human sacrifice, by the way. But he's testing the heart of Abraham. Saying, is your heart on this child of promise, or is it upon me, the promiser? And Abraham does it. He goes up, he takes his son up there, who carries all the wood and the fire, and he's got the knife drawn. He's about ready to sacrifice him. And along the way, you know, Isaac, his son's going, uh, you know, Dad, I see, I see we've got wood, we've got fire. Uh, where's the sacrifice? And he says, well, God will provide the lamb. And again, he's got his knife outstretched. And God stops him. He says, now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you love me. Now I know that your first allegiance is to me. And in the thicket behind is a wild ram. God provides the lamb. And by the way, 2,000 years after that, on that same mountain, Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, dies for sinful men and women. God provides the ram. But here's my point. God is saying, I need to be your first Love. I need to be your first allegiance. I need to be where all your hope is. As much as you love your family, as much as you love those around you, I need to be your life. Jesus has come to set a fire. To set a fire to respond to Him. To set a fire to be our first allegiance, our first love. But he's also come as the one who quenches the fire of God's wrath. The ground zero. Where his, God's wrath was satisfied. And we might become children of God. Again, the question always is, is how will you respond to him? Have you put your faith in him? How are you responding to this fire? Now we're going to head into a time of thoughtful celebration. Where we remember the fact that Jesus went to the cross for us. We practice here at Breen Community Church what we call open communion. That means if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're welcome at this table. You're welcome to participate because it's not my table. It's not the table of the Breen Community Church. It's the Lord Jesus who invites you here to this table to remember what He has done. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus here, we're grateful you're here. Just go ahead and pass the plate and the, the things down the aisle. No one is going to think anything different of you. Kids, here's the, always the instruction. If you put your faith in Jesus and mom and dad say yes, you're welcome. And if mom and dad say no, it's a great point of discussion later on today. But we're going to remember what Christ has done for us. But we always do it thoughtfully. We always do it remembering that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. And so the instruction from the Apostle Paul that comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 
says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread or drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So we're going to take a few moments and I'm going to ask you to silently in your heart just say, Lord, search me. Show me areas where I'm out of sorts with you. Show me areas that I've rebelled against you or I've sinned against you. And confess them to him. And you know what? He says if we confess our sin, we're, he's faithful. He's just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then we can continue on remembering what Jesus has done for us. That he might rescue us from the fire and the wrath of God. So, Colleen's just going to play quietly in the background and we're just going to ask the Lord to search our hearts.